Good morning, everyone. We're good to go. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not Pastor Nate, um, but I see we've got some new people. So uh, I am. My name is Greg Hunter. I'm one of the elders alongside Pastor Utley, who is on holidays for uh, this weekend. We'll be back next weekend. But thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Um, Pastor Nate had asked me a month or so ago if I would take a, a Sunday so that they could get away, and I was uh, grateful for the opportunity, the humbled as well. Um, you can start flipping. We have been in the New Testament. We're going to be uh, in the Old Testament today, Jonah 4. So the reason I came about uh, selecting Jonah 4 uh, was rooted in, uh, back in March, Pastor Nate and I went to a three days uh, pastors conference. So there was about 30 pastors and lay elders uh, down at a conference to be taught uh, on how to improve on exegetical preaching. If you're not familiar with exegetical preaching or expository preaching, um, it's a, a technique, if you want to call it that, that, that takes you line by line through Scripture. So less thematic and more what does each line, each word if necessary, um, say in a, in a particular verse. So if you've been with us, Pastor Outley's been going through 1 Corinthians. So we're going through chapter by chapter, line by line. Um, that's what we use here at Beaumont Baptist. We believe that, that every uh, word of God in Scripture uh, is, is perfect and true and God-breathed. So we believe it, it keeps us on task. And another thing that, that Pastor Nate had mentioned when he was encouraging me and helping me prepare, he just said, we have two techniques. You can you can either look and say, what does this scripture say? Or what do I want to say about this scripture? And it's important to, to stick to what does the scripture say? Nobody really gives two cents about what I have to say about it. God's word's perfect. Mine is certainly not. So that's how I came about to, to select Jonah 4. So at this conference, we were divided into groups. I didn't know anybody else in my group. There was about eight per group. So I was with other lay elders. And they just gave us a passage ahead of time and said, prepare a sermon outline. Um, I have no seminary background or anything like that. So it was like drinking from a fire hose for me. It was a lot to take in. And I, I was definitely humbled, but it was exciting at the same time. Um, I was given Jonah 4 and then a passage in Nahum. And they gave us a brief you know, booklet on, on how best to, to lay it out. And then during those three days, we fleshed out on how to improve upon it. And I certainly had lots of improving that was needed. So if you want to turn with me, if you're not there already, Jonah 4. And we're going to, to start at the top. But if I was to mention the book of Jonah, I would imagine some of you, if not most of you, are familiar with it. You would probably, if I said, what's it about? Somebody would say Jonah and the whale. Uh, maybe VeggieTales version, uh, Jonah and the big fish, or if somebody was actually paying attention in Sunday school, maybe Jonah calls the Ninevites to repent. So, so maybe somebody would have that. But those things are all part of Jonah. But as I studied Jonah 4, I myself grew in the understanding of what this book had to say. And it had a whole lot more to say about the prophet himself and his heart and I think even less to say about the, the people of Nineveh. So Jonah 4, let's read together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching each wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So if you're a note-taker, I've, I've broken it down. Um, it was one of the methods we taught there, trying to find themes in, in the chapter, but I've broken it down into to three truths or, or points, if you want to call them that. So... Uh, first point where we'll start is that we're naturally focused on the eternal. Second point will be we need to see the external. And lastly, the Lord points us to the eternal. So to start with uh, focusing on the internal, our passage begins with, but it displeased Jonah. But we have no idea what he's talking about if we don't go back to chapter 3 and see what immediately preceded the statement. So if you're unfamiliar with the story going back to chapter 1, the Lord tells Jonah, a prophet of his people, a prophet of Israel, to go to the biggest city of the country of the arch enemy of Israel and tell them to repent. If they don't repent, he's going to destroy them in 40 days. So instead of obeying this direct command, he literally flees due west. So I think where we're sitting, that's this way. Instead of heading towards to Tarshish, instead of heading towards Nineveh, and they're like, 2,700 miles apart. So he's supposed to go here, and he went there. Um, he knew exactly what he was doing. So through the, the Lord using a, a great storm, which people are familiar with Jonah, he uses a great storm, and he causes him to get stopped in the ocean. And this is where he gets chucked out, swallowed up, spit out, given a second chance. So he goes to Nineveh, does his job, and here's where we hear about what he's upset about. Here's what happens when he does his job and calls Nineveh to repent. So starting in Jonah 3, verse 6, we read, The word reached the king of Nineveh. Again, the call to repentance, that they're going to be wiped out if they don't repent. So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce angle so that we may not perish. So one of the things they taught us when we were down at the conference that I found very helpful in, in understanding the purpose of a passage is, is they asked the question, and you can do this in your own devotional, what would the story be like if we removed this passage? We, God's given it to us in his providence for a reason. What if it wasn't there? So for Jonah 4, it's a pretty easy one. If we don't have Jonah 4, it's a pretty encouraging story that Jonah is, doesn't listen miraculously gets a second chance, calls these horrible pagan people to repent, and they repent. It's all pretty positive. But then we read Jonah 4, and it changes the story in in a lot of ways and exposes the sinful heart of this prophet, this man of God. So looking back on our chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see that Jonah comes to the Lord in prayer but he doesn't come in, in a spirit of praise for what the Lord has done by saving these people. He, he comes in a spirit of exasperation. He's disappointed. He's upset. In the verse 2, we see his true heart, the heart that drove him to, to flee to Tarshish. I know growing up, I, my understanding was he was just scared of these wicked people. And there was maybe a factor in there. But we'll read that there was much more to why he fled 2,700 miles in the wrong direction. The Ninevite people were, were horribly violent and pagan, and for the sake of little people, I won't go into some of the details. You could research that yourself, but these people did horrible, horrible, violent things, and they're not the type of people you'd want to walk up and call to repentance, <laughs> especially in their major city and walk up and down the streets like Jonah did. But that wasn't primarily the fear of the response of these people that kept him from doing his job. It was the fear that the Lord would relent from destroying these people. So if you look back in verse 2 and just and read with me what it says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah states openly that that's the character of the Lord. Well, he, was, he knew the character of the Lord when he was in his own country, and it was God's gracious, merciful, slow-to-anger characteristics that caused him to fled. If Jonah knew that God was a God of all wrath with no chance of mercy, he'd have been the first one on the boat to go to Nineveh. He'd have been happy to proclaim to these people that they're going to get it in 40 days. And he gets to have a front row seat, and, and we'll read how this was clearly his heart. In verse 3, it continues, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This isn't the first time Jonah said this. If, if, we're, if you want to flip to, to Jonah 1, verse 12, and keep your finger in chapter 4, you can read. So the context of this verse is Jonah's tried to flee in the boat, God then stops Jonah from fleeing by the great storm. The sailors have tried everything in, in their sailor abilities, throwing out cargo and everything, to, to save the ship, but at no avail. They all know that they're going to drown. And in verse 12 it says, He, that is Jonah, said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, 
Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's at this point that Jonah admits that it's his fault that they're in this storm and that he alone should be the one who who pays for the punishment. In Jonah 1, this might seem like a a very noble statement, Um, but if we flip back to chapter 4 where we're at, we see that his primary motivation was not to save the sailors. He was so committed to not following God's will to to call these, these horrible people to repentance that he would rather choose death. So it's far less, you know, fellow sailors, let me save you with my selfish act. It's more, I might as well die. It's fairly fatalistic. He says, I might as well die anyhow. That's the motivation, because I know what the Lord's going to do. So it's not really bravery. It's more just calling it quits, and he figures this is, this is it. He may as well die. So if we're in, back in verse 4, the Lord answers Jonah's disappointment not with rebuking him openly at this point, but with a single probing question. And the Lord says, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, he fails to see the irony of the situation. The Lord is being tremendously gracious. He's, he's infinitely slow to anger with Jonah himself. Jonah's complete lack of obedience and complete lack of compassion on these people. And the Lord is patient. He literally performs a miracle using a great fish to swallow him up and spews him back on mission on the shore, giving him the ultimate second chance that, that, that people remember because it's, it's so miraculous, this story. But he misses all that the Lord has done for him, falls on his face, and rather than, than being concerned about, about what the Lord's not punishing these people, these wicked people, he focuses on his own selfish desire for vengeance against his arch enemy, the, the enemy of the Israelites. His, his complaint about God's mercy and his, his compassion is the very same mercy and compassion that kept Jonah from drowning in the sea. Which brings us to our second point. In verse 5, if we continue reading, and we can see that Jonah's conscience is still yet to be pricked with these probing questions from the Lord. So Jonah went out of the city, so he, he's called them to repentance, and he's now heading out of town. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah finds a great vantage point on the hill and sits back, and he's hoping to watch the show. He knows that the people of Nineveh are horrible, godless people. He knows what they deserve. And interesting, in my study on Nineveh, they still use that to sort of describe the area. It's an area in modern-day Iraq, it's right across the, the river from the, a city called Mosul, which is a home to 1.7 million people today. It's, it's a desert setting. 
So you certainly need shade, and, and if you want to do your own research, it's amazing you can still see some of the original Nineveh city walls. So it's hot, very, very hot. So Jonah knows he's going to need a shelter. So we don't know what kind of shelter he builds. It just says Jonah builds himself a, sh- a shelter. And then God even improves upon the situation be- because he provides a fast-growing plant to, to shade him. This is the first time in the entire book of Jonah that we see Jonah exceedingly glad about anything. He wasn't exceedingly glad when he was swallowed by the fish. And I don't know if you're like me, I would probably be excited for a second chance and probably more excited to get spit out. But he had no excitement with that. Jonah's given a second chance, but he, he's more, again, worried about himself. He's he finally believes he's at peace. He's, he's done what God told him to do. He learned his lesson. He's now got comfort, and he's got a great seat for hopefully to watch the Sodom and Gomorrah show part two. Um, but God doesn't bring the swift destruction that Jonah so desperately wanted to see. He did bring destruction, but it wasn't to the city or its people, or as we read at the end, not even to its animals. He brings the destruction to his precious little plant. In verses 7 and 8, you can follow with me, he, we see his heart again. The Lord just keeps showing us his motivation and, and Jonah's true heart. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching each wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So the worm that attacks the plant, followed by the desert wind, quickly wipes out his comfort situation. And then we see again the same phrase that you're probably getting tired of hearing, it is better for me to die. The difference this time is the Lord doesn't just leave him to simmer on the question about being angry. The Lord this time sort of pulls back the veil on Jonah's heart and and pokes a little deeper. Jonah still doesn't see that there's this chasm between God's character that has again been infinitely patient with him, giving him chance and chance again, and and Jonah's heart being over here where he's just focused on vengeance and justice. Jonah, even being told again here, he doubles down on his anger. And for the third time in this brief exchange, he asks for his own death rather than watch the Lord not do anything to these people, relent from the 40 days of impending doom. I think it's helpful if we look in, you don't have to flip there, but you'll be familiar with this passage, most of you, in the book of Exodus, a passage of scripture that Jonah would have known, we read about how the Lord describes himself and his own character. So while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, we read about this exchange. The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Does this sound familiar? keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
the Lord here sort of expounds on, on what Jonah is, is, is seeing and, and says that he will by no means clear the guilty. And the other passage that, that I was given in, in my group was, was Nahum. And these books are connected because if you read in the book of Nahum, 150 years later, the Ninevites fall back into sin and are ultimately wiped out by the Babylonians. They're giving a chance, but ultimately the Lord still holds them to account. God will make all things right. He will hold us all to account. But that's God's department and, and not all ours. Jonah wanted to fill that role. And, and the irony of it is, is he wanted justice served on the Ninevites, but he had no interest in justice being served on himself. So we've seen how he's, he's, we're all naturally focused on our own internal pride and, and We've also read how we need to be sort of turned around and forced to the external. Well, finally, we read that we see that the Lord always points us to the bigger things, to the eternal nature of, of everything. Another technique that, that they taught us, and I, I hope these things are helpful for, for, for you when you're reading in your own Bible or following along. They said make sure when you're reading that you, you pay special attention for, for repetition. Um, so if a verse keeps coming up and, and it says the same thing many times or a phrase, and then, and then often it's followed up by a comparison. So if we, if we look on, in, in chapter 10 and see if you can see how this pops out, and this is, again, the Lord is, is now probing more. He's not just letting Jonah simmer on the do you well to be angry. He goes deeper. So in verse 10 we read, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being at night and perished at night. The nature of Jonah's problem is that he was thinking very highly of himself, and not only himself, the, his Israelite people. The people of Israel, again, were an arch enemy of, of, of the Ninevites, which caused this, this hatred, he, but he had no desire to see any compassion towards these enemy. Jonah fails to see, though, who chose Jonah. Jonah didn't choose himself. God chose Jonah. God chose even the Israelite people to be his chosen people. And he didn't, he didn't choose them because they were the best pick or they were worthy and perfect. He chose them because he's God and he chose them in his providence. And this is where we see the comparison. So he just said, you, you, you. In verse 11 we read, And should not I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The Lord redirects his focus from, from I, and similar to what we read in, in, in when Moses, in the encounter with, with Christ with the bursting bush, he says, when, jo- when Moses says, like, what do I say to the people when I'm sent to them? God says, tell them I am, has sent him. So Jonah's focused on I instead of the, the I am. So if you're not sure what the I am, it's kind of a weird statement we don't, we don't use in our language, but I am is pointing to God's unchanging, eternal, all-powerful, dependent on no one characteristics. God stands alone. He is the I am, the great I am. So Jonah's got pity on his, his plant, Jonah didn't labor for the plant. The great I am planted the plant. 
Jonah didn't make it grow. The great I am made it grow. Jonah didn't make the worm. The I am made the worm. Jonah didn't direct the worm. I am directed the worm. God directed this all in his brother. Jonah did nothing. If this is true about the plant and the worm, then how much more important for Jonah to, to recognize the souls of 120,000 people? This is one of the, what's believed to be one of the biggest cities in the ancient world. So the, the phrase 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left is, is a bit odd. Um, there's sort of two lines of thinking. I don't think either really changed the, the theme of what it's saying, but commentators think that, that it, it likely respond, is describing people, kids four and under. So they literally don't know their left from their right. Hopefully most of you do. The other line of thinking is it's maybe people that were just morally ignorant. These are a pagan, godless people. So again, regardless of what it's re- referring to, God's pointing Jonah to a city that has a hundreds of thousands of people. If it's the children, it's multiple hundreds of thousands. So if you're like me, you're probably dying to know how Jonah responds. He's been, been poked and poked and poked and prodded at his heart. And the Lord points him to the number of people and even to the cattle. And then the book just ends. We don't, we don't get to know what Jonah did. We don't know if, he's, if he was broken in that moment and finally saw, like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm wanting to watch 120,000 people get annihilated for my own vengeance because I think they deserve it, seeing nothing of that of himself. We don't know if he just sticks to his guns and is angry. We, we don't know any of these things. And then we're sort of at this, like, so, so what moment. I want to bring this to, to, to application. I think one of the, the dangers we have with, with a lot of these Old Testament stories that, that we know are literal events that actually happen is we can sort of look at them from 10,000 feet and be like, well, that's a, that's a great story. Like, I certainly remember getting swallowed by a fish, but what, what application does this mean for us? Is there any parallels? Do we just, are we left think, thinking like, man, that Jonah was a real piece of work. Like, it's bitter, angry. I'm sure glad I'm, that's not me. Like, what a, what, a, what a guy. But if we can't see our own heart in this story, I think we're missing why the Lord has given us this story. Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel. These are a people that were blessed by God, chosen by God, but they weren't living as such. They they became arrogant and comfortable and, and and somehow begin to believe that their blessings were deserved themselves, that they, that they, they had good things coming because they were good, and they started to lose focus. And we know that to be true because they lost focus of where the blessings came from. They even lost focus enough that they started worshiping pagan gods. These these were people that had been given so much and just just lost focus. Now, I'm not here to, to say we're the nation of Israel. We're certainly not. But if you're, if you're in the pew today, you've been given an opportunity to, to hear a whole lot more truth from the Word of God than most people in our world. You, you have access to the Scriptures. You have freedom that most people don't. And if this doesn't humble us, I think we're missing the point. If... 
we, I think we need to ask ourselves, are, are we moved with compassion for those people who have yet to even hear the gospel? The Ninevites hadn't heard the gospel, and there's much of our world that's in the same, same boat. I, I was talking to a fellow of Sikh descent um, a couple weeks back, and, and he knew nothing of Jesus, nothing. Just came, just moved here from a land that the name of Jesus is not prevalent. Do we find ourselves in our Western society, like Jonah, in our in our comforts and and our shade? There's nothing wrong with enjoying comfort and shade. Praise God for His provision. But if that's our focus, and we're running around making our our shade prettier and and more comfortable, but we're not spending any time being broken about our neighbors, our, our family, or, or in this situation, even our enemies. These, these were, these were the, Jonah's, they weren't his neighbors. These were horrible pagan people that, that he hated, that hated him and hated God's people. Do we have compassion for them? Or are, are we happy to see them walk the road to destruction? I think it's helpful if, if we flip to a New Testament passage. You don't have to, you can just listen. Ephesians 1, verse 3, a very familiar passage. I think it just emphasizes again what God does, what we don't do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, picking up in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed upon us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will." according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything that the Lord has blessed us with, most importantly, our salvation through Christ alone, is because God is good. And God made that possible. You know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to get our act together. We'd never get it together. We, nobody could ever get it together enough. He died because he is good, not because we earned it any more than the Israelites earned it or Jonah earned being picked. If you're a follower here today, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then first I would ask you to, to recognize that and rejoice in his saving grace, but also pray, and I do this myself as I'm humbled by this passage, that, that jo- he would reveal if there's any of Jonah's heart living in us. If I was to ask you, do you, can you think of anybody in your own mind who you see as unworthy of the Lord's forgiveness? Somebody that's beyond the point of, of the Lord's saving, that is too evil, who's done too many bad things to, to us, or fill in the blank. Is there anybody that comes to mind? And if there is, then, then I would ask you to, to ask <laughs> yourself what God asked Jonah. Do you do right to be angry? Is it, is it right to, to have that animosity towards that person? 
I would ask you, is there any pride? Is there any unforgiveness that, that is there that you can see that this exposes? But I'm sure there's people here today that, that wouldn't call themselves a follower of Jesus, that, that wouldn't put themselves in the camp of God's, God's people. They would maybe relate more to, to the Ninevites. And if you're in that camp, you need, to, you need to realize that the characteristics of God that he describes himself in Exodus, that's being offered to you, that he is, he is patient and he's kind and he is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, but God is also true to his word. And it says that he will, no, he will by no means clear, clear the guilty. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if that's not something you've done and you think that somehow you can, can earn it or, or you don't need to bother anyhow because there is no God or, or whatever your headspace is, if you haven't confessed your sins and realized that Christ is your only hope of salvation, then you are the Ninevites. And, and God's not going to, to clear you. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. And, and if not today, then w- when you go to see your Maker you're either going to see Jesus Christ as your savior on that day or you're going to see him as your judge. Don't let that be your story. I'd ask you to bow your heads with me as we just meditate on, on this brief passage of scripture.